Um, there are two readings today. The first one is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The second reading today is from Acts 2, 42-47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Do keep that passage and Acts open. That's what we'll be considering together. This is uh, the fourth of four of a little series in the book of Acts as we begin our year in uh, central uh, home groups and uh, Bible study groups, considering it uh, the whole book together, and hopefully this will prepare us. Why don't I uh, lead us in a prayer before we begin? Our Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes now to your word. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. And we pray, Father, that you would build us up, your people, um, by your word of grace. And we pray it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, friends, let me ask you, did you did you feel as you woke up this morning and thought you were going to come to CCM, that you were going to come to heaven on earth? Is that what you thought? If, you're, uh, if this is your first morning, I know a number of you, uh, this is your first time with us. You've joined CCM. Did you feel that you'd come to heaven on earth as you came through the door? I mean, I felt very welcome this morning, but as you saw those smiling faces, did you feel, I've come to heaven on earth? Did you feel as, uh, as you walked over to the coffee bar in Pravin served you coffee, those carefully hand-picked and roasted coffee beans? Did you think, you know, I've come to heaven on earth? And then when you sat down to the person next to you, did you think that this was a little taste of heaven on earth? I'm sure they're nice people, but did you think that you'd come to heaven on earth? And if you've ever experienced a church weekend away, a little taste of communal church life, if you've ever been on a weekend away at this church or another church, do you wake up in the morning at bleary-eyed, half-slept, because the fire alarm woke you in the night, because there was a little flashing standby light on the TV in the corner and you couldn't sleep, and you wake up bleary-eyed and you come down to breakfast with people from church, and do you think, I've come to heaven on earth? Is, is, is that what you think? Well, if it is, I'm afraid you haven't been at church for very long, and you're going to be, be, be sorely disappointed. And uh, that ideal, if you like, will be shattered very quickly. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the 20th century theologian and uh, martyr, he actually said that that's the beginning of real community, Christian community, is when that ideal, any ideal we have, any fantasy we bring to church, is shattered. 
he says, and it's an interesting thought that that all of us, if you like, have an ideal of what Christian community should be like, about what the local church should be like. And he says that it can only begin, actually, in earnest, in reality, when that ideal is smashed, when that ideal is shattered. So if you've just experienced your first disappointment here at CCM, if you've just started to get to know someone, you, you rub up closely in life with someone and there's been tension and you've had to seek and ask for forgiveness, if you've just started to be disappointed about the way things are run at CCM, well, Bonhoeffer would say, well, no, it's not time to leave but to stay. It's not the end but the beginning because now that the ideal has been shattered, now that the fantasy has been broken, well, real Christian community can begin. Well, if that's uh, what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to leave ideals behind, leave fantasies behind, and let real Christian community begin. Well, I want to say that this little passage we're considering this morning is a problem. So this is, uh, uh, we're continuing our series in Acts, and we've reached uh, verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. But if there ever was a, a sanitized, idealized picture of the local church, surely it's verses 42 to 47. Where we left off last week, There had been an enormous number of conversions after Peter's Pentecost sermon, 3,000 converts. And these new swelling group of people, well, they're devoting themselves, do you see in verse 42, to a common life. Uh, They're eating together, meeting together, praying together, praising together, sharing possessions, having favor before all the people. And verse 47, they're growing daily. They do everything together. But surely it's an idealized picture. Surely it's a little bit of sacred history. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's uh, it's very important. It, it's the first post-Pentecost gathering. It, it's a great little vignette of early church life. But it's a museum piece, isn't it? I mean, ought we not to extract this? Ought we not to extract it and say, actually, th- th- this is a mark of where we've come from. Th- these are our roots. A bit like Magna Carta, that, that great charter, 13th century charter of English freedoms and liberties. It, it shows us our roots, but but nothing more than that. And certainly if you read the commentators on this passage, if they're to be believed, though, well, that's what it is. It's Luke putting on his rose-tinted spectacles and giving us a little glimpse into first-century socialism. Well, with God's help, I want to persuade you that quite the opposite is true of this passage. Instead of extracting it, I want to set it like a piece of cloth, if you like, back in the tapestry from which it's cut and the story from which it comes And I want to persuade us that actually in these verses we see that in a very real sense, heaven has come to earth in the local church. And that actually this is true not just of the Jerusalem church, but of every local church. And far from being unreal, I want to say and persuade us from these verses that this is the very reality we've come to today, the very reality we see in each other. Come with me to uh, to verse 42 to 47. And I want us to notice our our first point, that all those who are saved are one with each other. So with a slight modification of the the three musketeers motto, you reach the common thread that uh, runs throughout this whole passage. All are one. Everybody is one. This uh, swollen multitude of converts, they're intent on being one. Do you see verse 42? That their oneness is seen in a common devotion to the apostles' teaching. To the last person, they've got a commitment to the apostles' teaching. That's what they're holding fast to. To fellowship, that that word literally means a oneness. When many become one, it it speaks of community, of oneness. And this many, this multitude have become one. And it's true not just of their devotion to the apostles' teaching, but in their eating, in their meeting together, in their praying together. 
and in their fearing, what they fear, what they have an awe of in verse 43. Literally every soul, no exceptions in this group, share in a common fear and awe at the signs and wonders that are being done through the apostles. And then verse 44, we get that extraordinary statement that they shared everything in common. Verse 45 confirms it. Even their possessions they were sharing. As though the many couldn't be one for as long as there was a gaping need that someone had that someone else could meet. And then they met daily, but always together. They praised, but always together. They were eager for every opportunity that they all, that the many that they were, would become one. So quite simply, in these verses, all are one. All are one. That's the common thread. But if we left it there, if uh, we said that's all there is to say about this passage, well, we could still mistake it for being an idealistic, an unrealistic vision of the Christian life. And and the other thing about ideals uh, and fantasies is that actually they're very oppressive and cruel. It's always the way when people try to create heaven on earth is that actually it becomes very oppressive, very cruel and guilt-inducing. People groan under ideals. So here's a little taster of the sermon you could have had. This is a sermon you could have had. I hope you don't prefer this one, but uh, this is what you could have had as, uh, as you came to church this morning. Well, we come to this little passage, verses 42 to 47, and we've got the ideal church, the Jerusalem church, the ideal church. We're a local church. We must live up to this ideal. How do we do that? Verse 42, we're to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the Bible. We have it in the Bible. How's your Bible reading doing, your Bible study? Do you meet together to study the Bible? How are you doing with your Bible study? They met together to pray. Will you be here on Wednesday? Will you be meeting together to pray? Are you committed to prayer? The ideal church is we should be. And verse 44 to 45, they shared everything, including possessions. How's your giving? Can I ask you to consider your giving? Prayerfully consider your giving and let us give to meet the shortfall, to meet each other's needs. And what about meetings? Do we just come on a Sunday? There are all sorts of other meetings. You could sign up for a home group and come to a midweek meeting. There are lots of meetings. The ideal church, they they were always meeting. Are you meeting? And what about eating? Do we eat meals together enough? Are we in and out of each other's homes? Do you practice hospitality? Well, the ideal church does. We ought to. But please do it gladly. Do it thankfully. (laughs) Every time they did it, they did it with a thankful heart. Are you thankful? Are you thankful together? And every time they met together, they were praising. Do you praise? And look at the church. It's growing. How's our evangelism? Are we growing? The ideal church is a growing church. Are we growing? Well, that's the sermon you could have had. And uh, we would have all left suitably chastened and guilty. And maybe all of it wouldn't have been false guilt. But the point is that it would have been a misuse and abuse of this passage. It's not what this passage is here for. You see, the reason is, if you look down verses 42 to 47, no one needs to be told to do anything. There's no hint of compulsion. These people just are one. And here's what I think. I think there's a there's an abundance. There's a, a sign of no lack. There's a generosity here that is flowing through these verses like a hidden river. It's like a hidden river of grace, or, or it's like there's a hidden bounty that's being shared out by these people that we know nothing about. But it's actually not hidden. It's, it's right under our noses in verses 42 to 47. They don't need to try and create heaven on earth, and nor do we. 
because heaven has already come to earth. It's already come to their midst. And this passage isn't telling us how to become one. It is telling us that we are and that we are one, that we already share everything in common. And the key, the key is that the all, the they at the beginning of verse 42, this whole group without exception, are the same group who in verse 41 have welcomed the apostles' message, have become saved, have turned to the one Lord. This group all, in verses 42 to 47, the all who are one, well, this group is numerically identical with those who have accepted the Lord Jesus as the one Lord, those who have received and have poured into them the one Spirit from the one Lord. They're one people because they have one Lord. So with that, let me come, if you like, with new spectacles to look at verses 42 to 47 with uh, our second points that these people have become one, all are one, by sharing in the one Lord in their midst. Now, if you uh, discover, if you work in the city or you work in a workplace in which there's a team, there's a group of people, if you discover that that team's remarkably united, well, you want to know who they work for. You want to know the boss under whom they work. And to the eyes and ears of an ancient person, if they heard that a people had become united, that the people were in some sense one, that they shared a common devotion, they would say, who's, who's the ruler? Who is the one victorious Lord that they serve under? Plutarch writes about Alexander the Great, and he says that Alexander seemed like a heaven-sent ruler. Why? Because everyone was one under him. And to the eyes and ears, not just of the ancient person, but of the Old Testament person, if you said that the people of God, the people of Israel, are now one, they are united, well, you would say, oh, well, the Lord has declared and shown himself to be the one true God. There really is one Lord. But actually, we don't need to reach back that far. We can reach back, actually, just to last week's passage, to chapter 2. Because wasn't the remarkable thing that Peter preached at Pentecost was that the Spirit had been shared out to all God's people without distinction. And that was an unmistakable sign of one thing, that they shared together in the one Lord. There was a Lord they could call out to, and that Lord would pour out his one Spirit and they would share, if you like, the spoils of victory. We had read for us Psalm 110. It was the last passage that's been quoted in Acts chapter 2 before our passage. And it's a victory psalm, really. It's saying that God has joined everything together in heaven and on earth under one person in the hands of the one who is at his right hand, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus. And now history is really just the unfolding of his enemies being brought under his sway. It's a victory psalm. And the sign of that victory, the mark of that victory, is that there are one people. We are one people because the one Lord has poured out his spirit into our midst. We share in that one spirit this morning. Now, now why this is important for us in verses 42 to 47 is that it means that everything we're reading here, we're not just to see as human, we're to see as divine, we're to see as actually God in the midst of his people. It means in every time in in verse 42 to 47, they all become one. It means they're, they're partaking in, they're enjoying, they're holding fast to the one Lord they share in. So let me just uh, revisit some of the things they're devoted to here. And let's see that it's not simply human, but it is actually the, the risen Lord in their midst that they're sharing in. So, the apostolic teaching in verse 42, the, 
the signs and wonders of the apostles, done through the apostles in verse 43. Is this devotion to humans, or is it devotion to God? Is it a fear of humans or a fear of God? Well, I want to say it's a devotion to the risen Jesus. It's an awe at the presence of the risen Jesus. You see, though it involved human beings, though the apostles were human beings like you and I, though teaching came through them, this was devotion to the Lord Jesus in their midst. What did the apostles speak? What did they speak? They spoke the words that had been given to them by the Lord Jesus through the Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 2. And when they stood up to speak, as Peter did at Pentecost, what was his subject? Was it not the risen Lord Jesus? And the apostles didn't have a a contract of employment, but if they did, it would just have six words in it. The job spec would say, witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. So when we meet the apostolic teaching, and when we receive the word of the apostles, as they did in verse 41, we receive the risen Lord Jesus. He pours his spirit into our hearts. Well, what about verse 43, these signs and wonders done through the apostles? Is that to strike great fear at the, the apostles themselves? Well, have a look back at chapter 2, verse 19. What, what are signs and wonders? I know we use it in common parlance, but, but where does it actually come from? What does it mean? Well, have a look at chapter 2, verse 19. Where we're told, and this is quoting the Old Testament book of Joel, that, that signs and wonders happen when God is joining heaven to earth. Do you see that? That God shows wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below. Heaven, if you like, is joined to the earth by these signs and wonders. It is, if you like, God's accreditation, his way of saying, look, look though you see this on earth, please know that uh, I have placed my presence here. This is the very center of my activity. It's his accreditation. Well, who does he accredit? Is it the apostles? Well, no, have a look at verse 22. It is and always has been Jesus of Nazareth. God backed Jesus of Nazareth by signs and wonders. And he's still doing the same. He's still backing and testifying that he has raised Jesus Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, from the dead. And that he is the one who is the ascended Lord. Now we'll, uh, we'll think in a moment about what this means for us, these signs and wonders. But do we see here that, that as these people, as they are all one, devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching, showing all at the signs and wonders, they're devoting themselves to nothing less than the risen Lord Jesus. They're partaking in his presence. Well, what about sharing possessions in verses 44 to 45? Surely this is first century socialism. This is communism, surely. Well, that won't do. It actually won't do. Though lots of people say that's what it is, that won't do. We know from a similar passage in a couple of chapters, a parallel passage, that actually this wasn't an end to private ownership. People still held possessions. The issue wasn't whether you held possessions. They didn't pull all their possessions as one. And nor was it imposed top down from the apostles. This was voluntary. It wasn't a policy. It was voluntary. And the thing about socialism is it's a human system. You could debate the rights and wrongs of it, but it's a human system. It's good news for the poor, but it's bad news for the rich. Capitalism, it's a human system. You might say it is that in reverse. But here do you see that this is as good for the one giving as as for the one receiving. What we see in verse 45, it's not human, it's divine. And here's what's divine about it. Verse 45, 
Do you see that the possessions that are passing from, from those who have to those in need? Do you see that the, the only criteria for distributing the bounty, the gift that some have to others, the only criteria is that the person in need has called upon the name of the Lord, that they belong, if you like, to this, this all who have called upon the name of the Lord. And who is that like? It's exactly like the risen Lord Jesus who when he came into his, if you like, his coronation and received the spirit at the right hand of the Father, he shared that spirit, that one spirit, the spoils of victory, his bounty, if you like, with his people. And the only requirement, the only criteria was that they call upon the name of the Lord. That's the only distinction that he required for his giving. You see that word in verse 45, forgave? It actually translates a quite an unusual word for distribute or divided. And the last time in the book of Acts, that something was divided. It was the tongues of fire. When the Lord Jesus poured out his spirit in rushing wind and tongues of fire and separated the spirit on each of God's people. When he shared out the spirit with all God's people. So in verse 45, we're seeing an echo of that. It's an echo of what God has done. It's divine, it's not human. And there's something remarkable that happens when people accept this apostolic message. We get a little glimpse in a couple of chapters of, of what these people who were, were giving their possessions away were actually thinking. And they started, I mean, some of them said, we don't even regard these as our possessions. We don't even count them as our own anymore. And what had happened was something remarkable. It, it was that when they had accepted the Lord Jesus and received his spirit, it's as though it turned all the things that they owned into gifts. It's as if everywhere they looked in their life, they saw gifts now. And you see, when, when men and women realize that they've been saved, that they've been plucked from a crooked generation, that they've been rescued, that the Lord Jesus has withheld nothing from them, not even his spirit, they realize that everything they have is part of the bounty that God has given them. And so this doesn't determine whether or not God's people hold possessions. It, it determines how they hold them. They're part of a bounty that, in a sense, is already shared. With whom? Well, with all those who have called upon the name of the Lord with them. And so when that happens, when it happens here in this passage, we're to see it as the work of God. We're to see it as a partaking in the victory of the risen Lord Jesus. They share everything because they already share everything. Well, what about that meeting and eating together? Let's take those together. We, we see them all through the passage in verse 42, verse 46. They're always eating. They're always meeting. They're always breaking bread. That's just an idiom for, for them sharing a meal together. But they're always doing it. But is it social? Is that human? Or is it divine? Is it, is it a merely social thing? Well, it's often said, of course, that at this time, to, to, to break a, a common bit of bread, to, to share a meal, well, it was to, in a very vivid way, show that there was a common bond. But that's true generally. Anytime people come together, anytime people eat together, there's always a reason for it. There's always something they've got in common that has brought them together. But the question is, is this a social bond, a horizontal one? Or is it divine? Does it speak of God's presence in their midst? Well, again, the last time this phrase, breaking bread, has been used by Luke. It was in Luke chapter 24. And two strangers had walked on a dusty road days after Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, had been crucified. And they walked on the dusty road to a mess. 
And when they sat down to eat, the stranger, the third person who was with them, broke bread. And they hadn't realized it until that point. They hadn't realized it before. They suddenly realized they were in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. And it's as though every time since that believers come together and they break bread, they're in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. Because as they look at each other round that table, as they, they share the one bit of bread between two, they realize that they share in the risen Lord Jesus. The reason that they've come together, the only reason, if you like, that they share something in common, it is the Lord Jesus. So it's not just the Lord's Supper in which that presence of the Lord Jesus is, is vividly demonstrated. It's as though every meal becomes a festival meal. These people have come to Jerusalem for a festival, and it's as though they never left one. Every eating together, every act of coming together was a vivid reminder that we share something, and we share the Lord Jesus together. Well, as we, uh, as we come to think about ourselves and what this means for us, I want to say that we're to share with each other in the victory of the one Lord who is in our midst, who is in our midst. It's about as onerous and burdensome a thing as saying, come to the table and feast, there's a place set for you. As saying, come and share in the spoils of victory. That's about as burdensome as it is to be. Uh, A few years ago now, I was was in Oxford and I was getting a taxi um, back to the station and I got chatting to the taxi driver. And I said to him, have you always had a cab and worked a, a taxi? And he said, no, I haven't actually. I used to work in the Bodleian Library, the, the research library, deposit library in Oxford. And he, he told me a story of his time in the Bodleian. He said, I used to work in the, uh, in the archives. So in the basements, uh, there are all sorts of manuscripts and copies of very important documents. And he used to work there. And he said, it was something remarkable. There was a man, an elderly gentleman, who lived in Oxford. And And every day that man came and asked for the same documents. He asked to see the same document. And I would get the document. It was a very important one, so I had to ask him to wear gloves. And he would handle it very carefully. He knew it was important. And this this elderly man sat down at a table and he poured over it every day. And the man was J.R.R. Tolkien. He was the writer and creator of, of Lord of the Rings, an old Oxford scholar. But the documents that he poured over was the Magna Carta. It was that 13th century document of English liberties. And it struck me that actually as, as that man sat down and poured over that document carefully, he wasn't handling a museum piece. No, for him it was the very token, a very real sign of the liberties, of the freedoms that he enjoyed. And in a sense, my prayer for us as we come to this passage is that is that we'll see in it, though others will see a museum piece, we'll see in it the very token, the very sign of the liberties that we enjoy, the freedoms we share, the victory we share in right now. And so in our remaining time, I just want to, to take us through those same areas that they were devoted to. And I want to encourage us that we share and that we ought to hold fast and continue to share in the victory that the Lord Jesus has won for us. So let us come to shared devotion to apostolic teaching and to signs and wonders. So what we're doing right now is, is it human or heavenly? Is it human or divine? The many that we are have all decided to become one this morning. And we've all decided to become one round one thing, the apostolic teaching that's recorded for us. It's in the New Testament it's recorded for us, but of course it it agrees with all that the, the law and the prophets have said in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus. But is it human or, 
or is it divine? Well, I want to say that actually it's divine, and we want to hold to that and continue in that. Because by these very words, we, we've come to share, like, like those in verse 41, we've come to share in the risen Lord Jesus himself. He has poured out his Spirit in our midst. Jesus hasn't simply remained there, but he has poured out his Spirit into our midst. And we've come to share in this as we've welcomed the message, the apostolic message. And every time we come to it, if you like, we come face to face with the benevolence, the grace of God that we've talked about already this morning. And if we don't do that, well, it's as though we cut off that river of grace that runs through this people here in Jerusalem and runs through us. And so as we gather here, as we are right now, we gather, as it were, at the feet of the risen Lord Jesus. Of course, there are human elements to it. I, I may err in my preaching. We all may err in our understanding, our reception of the apostolic teaching. But let's never mistake the origin of this apostolic teaching. It's with God, not with men. And we have an aid to our faith to, to persuade us that this comes with the authority of God. And, and the aid to our faith are the signs and wonders. Where are the signs and wonders? When Jan stood up to read, where were the signs and wonders that, that accredited this teaching, that attested it? Well, there is a difference between then and now. And the difference is that these, this apostolic teaching needed to be accredited because God was still laying his foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. God laid a foundation on the prophets and the apostles. It was his building. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And if you like, God has minted, he's accredited, he has testified that his foundation is of him so that we know that the building we've come to, the dwelling place we've come to, if you like, is of God's, not man. But uh, is that enough? Someone might say, well, no, that's enough. I, I want signs and wonders right now. I want them to come every time the apostolic teaching comes. Otherwise, I'm not going to accept that divine authority. Well, I want to just give us one biblical example where God says this is enough. God says it's enough where he, if you like, mints and accredits the foundation as being of him. In, uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, where God has testified as doing signs and wonders, well, in Exodus 19, we've got the great gathering of God's people at the foot of Sinai. As Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai, he, he receives the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God, given by God, and brings them down to the people. Now, there's lots that's human in that scenario. Moses goes up and comes down. And so you could think, well, no, that is simply human. But God accredited that, if you like. He testified to it um, with thunder, lightning, with, with great signs of his presence amongst them. A tradition grew up that, that angels had mediated the Ten Commandments, if you like. And for generations afterwards, right up into the New Testaments, the prophets and then the apostles say, look at the law. Look at the law. Look at how it was mediated, how it was founded. Look at the foundation on which it is laid. And that is supposed to bring, right now, today, the same authority for you. We're supposed to treat it with that reverence now because God has accredited it then. And the same is true with this apostolic teaching, except, of course, that the signs and wonders are all the greater because Jesus, the man, is all the greater. So I want us to hold, hold to this apostolic teaching. And we do as we gather here as one. Well, let us consider this uh, sharing of possessions. Well, I want to say that we, we see a sign of this in not so much in the fact that we have a shared budget that we contribute to, but, I mean, recently there's been set up a diaconate funds 
which I think is an attempt to reflect this, where, where those who are in difficult and urgent needs can receive help from others who, who have that help to give. And, and it's one way. It's not the only way. It doesn't have to be as formal as that. It happens all the time. I know it happens all the time. You, many of you will know it happens all the time. But I want us to hold to that as, as something that's not human. It's not just communal life. It, it is actually divine. It is very godlike. And so whether as givers or receivers, whether as those who are looking in and observing this, we're to see in this a continual sharing in the bounty of the Lord's. It's not a, a guarantee of ongoing financial wealth. So uh, it was true of the Jerusalem church later on in the book of Acts. We're told of a famine that, that ravaged Judea, no doubt the church in Jerusalem. They were poverty-stricken. And we're in difficult financial times. There's no guarantee of financial immunity. But, but when a church can, when the people of God can meet needs within their body, well, we're seeing and witnessing something, partaking in something that is of God. It is nothing less than partaking in the risen Lord Jesus. And finally then, what about meeting together? Eating together? Well, can I say that, that any time there is more than one person, any time there's a plural, if you like, that the many decide to become one for no other reason than that we share in the risen Lord Jesus, a meeting like this or hospitality, having some people around from church, in the faces of each other as we sit here, in the faces of each other as we share the same food around the same table, we're to see the sign that we share in the victory of the Lord Jesus. It's nothing less than that. And I want to say that uh, that we miss this in a couple of ways. We can miss this in a couple of ways. The first is obvious. If you think the Christian life is the solitary life, well, that's an anomaly. It can't be. It can't be. You, you have no vivid reminders as you go about life that you share in the victory of Jesus Christ. Come to the table. Come and share in the victory that the Lord Jesus has won for you. But but I think we also potentially miss out on this. If, if even within the church we stick with people that we've got lots in common with, humanly speaking. So if we if we always spend our time in church and uh, outside of church with people who are the same culture, same class, same backgrounds, same age, same stage, well, in a sense, we, we miss out on the very vivid sign that the people of God have here. Because there's there could be human reasons why we're coming together. We get on, we've got things in common, humanly. But if I can put it like this, when we come together with people that there's no earthly reason for us to come together with, well, we have a very vivid reminder in each other that what joins us, what we share in, is a victory, the victory of the Lord Jesus. We have drunk of the same spirit. We share in the same Lord Jesus, for nothing else could explain it. Well, then in uh, verse 47, it's our, our last verse and our last time in Acts for a little while. And we're given a head count, uh, as it were. So we began with a head count, 3,000 people. And we end in verse 47 with people being added to that number. And if you remember two weeks ago, remember there was a completion of a number, the number 12, representing the whole people of God. And the reason was because there was someone on the throne now who could make new offspring, make new heirs. Unlike Judas, whose heirs were cut off, Jesus could make multiple new heirs. And the difference between then and now is that that multitude cannot be numbered. We don't add to that number. We've almost given up counting because since then, between then and now, the Lord has added and kept adding to his number. For this is where he has placed his presence. The Lord Jesus has poured out his spirit 
in our midst. This is the one we share in. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father God, we praise you and thank you that you've withheld nothing from us, that the Lord Jesus at your right hand poured out your promised Holy Spirit upon us into our midst. We praise you that in each other we can see the signs of that victory. And we pray that we would continue to hold to this oneness that you have created, this oneness that you have brought into our midst. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.